Welcome to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. I'm Hardy White. Join me now, won't you, for a full hour of talking about important things that are not important. And it's not so much talking as it is making words do things from one mouth to an ear. Oh my goodness, I suppose that is talking. I need to go back and rewrite my mouth to ear points. I'm glad you're here. I'd put out a welcome mat, but you wouldn't see it. Trust me, it's there. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to sow and a time to reap. A time to the other kind of sow and a time to rip. A time to rip and a time to hold it in. A time to fly and a time to just rent a car and drive. We'll just drive it. I know it's longer, but I'm so done with the flying. I don't care about time. A time to have time and a time to be timeless or outside of time or take the time machine to another time and have an adventure. Now, I wish we could all do that. I wish there were literally time machines, except that I know that it would be very difficult to have them repaired. You just can't find someone to repair time machines anymore. I remember when I was young, there'd be lots of shops. I might be thinking of cobblers, because it's very similar. One of the first things that I remember hearing on the radio was a Paul Harvey joke. Now, he was a fellow that was on uh, AM radio. He might have been on FM radio also, but his voice was less compressed and there was more frequencies to it, so I don't know that I would have recognized it. But he told a joke about walking in to a cobbler. Now, what's a cobbler? Is that a type of dessert, Hardy? Did he walk into a type of dessert? Do people just step into pies like that? No, it was a shoe repair shop. You might see them now in some old strip malls, say shoe repair shop, and it's probably a cafe that just kept the name. Oh, look, it's got a shoe theme. Because we wear disposable shoes now, but it never was that way. It used to be that you'd get a fine pair of shoes, and occasionally the sole, which was made of uh, the rear end of an animal, would have to be replaced and nailed back on or sewed, and it took someone with skill to do this, and this would be the cobbler. We apple, cobbler, or it's not the same. So this fellow walks into a shoe store, and he says, are my sh- it, no, erase that. He's going through his drawers at home. Now, this is pertinent. You say, oh, you've started to tell the joke, and you told it wrong. That's actually part of a broader story I'm going to tell about my uncle Edwin's funeral, which is what I'm getting to. That's what has started all this, thinking about uh, death and mortality. Not that I don't think about it every single second of my waking life, but when you go to a funeral, it's even more in stark relief like that. I just It's the Thai food of emotions. You get <clears throat> happy and sad and sweet and salty and all together. Fellas going through his drawers at home, not his pants, his drawer, you know what I'm saying. And he finds a ticket, and it's a claim ticket for shoes. And it's very old. It's years old. He's, oh, I forgot I even had those shoes. I took those shoes to the cobbler, and he knows what a cobbler is, years ago. And now the shop is still here. I'm going to go down there and uh, and see, see if they still you know, have him. So he goes down there with his five-year-old claim ticket and he goes into the cobbler's and the cobbler comes out and he has his leather apron, something like a, a mason might have, except it's brown. And he's wearing that and he comes out and maybe he's got some special looking at shoes, glasses. You know how jewelers have those things stick out their eye that look like some kind of cyborg, but it helps them see the watch, which is very small. Shoes are a little larger, so I don't know what the glasses would look like. Maybe he likes to look through the wrong end of binoculars 
so he's got a better perspective on the shoe. If the shoe looks smaller, I used to be a watchmaker, he says, so I need the shoe to appear very small. So the cobbler comes out and the fellow says, I've got this uh, ticket or, you know, for my shoes I left here. Uh, do you still have them? And the cobbler says, I will look. And he goes in the back and he comes out a few minutes later and he goes, yep, I still have them and they'll be ready next Thursday. That's the end of this story or something. That's what Paul Harvey would say, but it isn't the end of the story. It's just the beginning. We'd also say page two, like that. Like, I don't need to know that. You're reading the, the stage directions, Paul. Well, I don't do that. Maybe I do that when I read scripts. Take a long pause, I might say out loud. But uh, the reason I'm telling a joke here is because my Uncle Edwin would tell jokes. He loved them. And I don't remember very many. That's the thing. You know, I'd love to hear jokes, but I don't, I don't know how to tell them. I'm that way with love and friendship sometimes, too. You know, I can get it. I'm not always as good as giving it. So, um, he died uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. And so they decided to have a funeral and bury him. I mean, I think that was always going to happen. But he'd been, uh, he was very, very old. Now, if you're 96, you go, that's not old. But uh, to me, that still seems old, 96. It, it used to be, I think. I don't know. It might be old. It is nearing the end of the average lifespan for human beings. But who knows? I mean, we don't know how long the oldest person is going to live, and they could be alive right now. They could be alive. The oldest person to ever live could be 70 right now, right? And we don't know. They're going to live another 70 years. How, how would we have known that? So, oh, my gosh, plan financially for a future that is you cannot even imagine. How do you do that? I wonder. I want to start building my spaceship now before they even have the technology because I do not want to be caught unawares. So I went to the funeral, and uh, I'm going to, I don't know whether to tell you about my last meeting with him, because he was very old, but he was also kind of dying for a long time. It wasn't in a great deal of pain, but he was in bed, and, and he wasn't doing so great, but he was very alert, and he loved to talk, and he loved to tell jokes, and so people would visit him. Family members, everybody visited him. We thought he was dying a year and a half ago. And he didn't. He held on, and he held court. And people would come by. The He did get moved to a facility, and uh, we would go by the facility and visit and talk. And I did this one last time, and it was wonderful. You know, he had many stories. He was in at, at age 18. He was uh, drafted into the military, and they shipped him to the West Coast coast from Florida and he found himself on a boat to Japan so he was headed to occupied Japan and um, at 18 throwing up and learning Japanese on a boat crossing the Pacific now for a young man from North Florida this is probably very strange but he had this sort of ability to be at home anywhere he was very present all the time and became an excellent uh, salesman, but just a, a better friend even. But what a fearless guy. So he, I guess he was, I don't know if he was brave or fearless. It was hard to tell because he wouldn't tell you just joke. He's one of those people. You think, I don't, this is wonderful, but you don't have to entertain me. But he did until his dying breath. So I would ask him about these things. What was it like? What did you do when you get there? You know, what is that? I know I have this Japanese sword. How did you get that? Because I'm a little worried. You know, where did it come from? And so he told me all those stories and everything. And then he told me a joke. Now, I remembered it a little bit. And I will tell you it in a little bit. But it's even better if I tell you how I heard it again. So he died, and we all went uh, to the funeral in North Florida, and we gathered there, first at the temple, and 
heard the, the elderly rabbi, rabbi almost his age, uh, had come out of retirement to do the service and did a lovely job until he got to the point where um, he needed someone to come up and tell him where he was. But that happens to me. See, I just uh, fade away, and then someone's going to say, you're right, they point to where we are in the book. My mind wanders. And uh, at a certain age, I think you're allowed. You can wander, wander off all you want. We'll sit here and wait for you to get back. No one was impatient about it. I thought, this is a lovely, silent respite from all the sadness. We'll just stand here. I don't ever feel bad for anybody who freezes or gets really quiet on a podium or anything. It's nice. I just think it's like the blank page in a book that says notes. It's, you know, you fill it in here. Not everything has to, not every moment has to be filled with information or entertainment. Oh my goodness. Now we have tried it. WFMU loves to try it experimentally, like dead air or just some kind of noise or anything for a while. That's lovely. And they know it's not intrinsically entertaining. They're just making a philosophical point. But we've hopefully we've chased a lot of the conceptual artists off the air for a while so we can play some uh, music and tell jokes. But they'll be back. We uh, stood there and listened to some beautiful eulogies by his children and his grandchildren. He has great-grandchildren, and um, I don't know how old they are. They're not super old yet. I could lie and say he's a great, great, great grandchildren. He will, though. He just won't be alive for them. I guess that's how that works. So, uh, wonderful service. And then we head to the cemetery and to the family plot, a plot that I've been at so many times. There, under the live oaks and the loblolly pines. I love saying that. We stood at the gravesite. And the family gathered around, his widow there, still alive. A really weird thing happened during the service, though. So there was two rabbis. There was a younger one who had just been recently dismissed by the congregation, and the older one who didn't. None of them really worked there anymore. That, I love that. And uh, uh, the widow, my aunt, her phone rang during the service. I guess it was hers, but, and the, and the one rabbi looked over and he said, oh, that's Edwin calling. And I went, or something like that. That was spooky to me. I wanted to raise my hand and say, no, it isn't, probably. So, I, you know, it just uh, creeped me out a little bit. I thought, I hope there's not, you know, and now we're going to the coffin cam. So we can... Uh, I know they have those to detect if you're really dead. They test you now, though. So how do they test you? Well, uh, you're laying there dead, and they will tell you a joke. It's like well, that old show, Make Me Laugh. Did you ever see that? They used to have Make Me Laugh. There was a game show, Make Me Laugh. One time, one of the contestants was Frank Zappa. And it's like, you have to make Frank Zappa laugh. And they had, like, Gallagher. And you think, this isn't going to work. He's not going to laugh. You know, he'll smirk. Uh, condescendingly, but you're not going to get a belly laugh. So I don't know if he's dead or not. But uh, most people, you know, you know, they're just faking it. So you go, get out of here, get out of the funeral home. You're not dead. You're funning. But Edwin was really dead, and that wasn't him calling, and we were all there at the graveside, standing on other relatives' graves. You know how you have to do. You know, you say, oh, is this right? But they're not really there, and they're also very, very deep down. If they were there... There's a lot of, it's just like, there's more earth there than if you were walking on an apartment floor where there's just a, maybe a, you know, maybe a foot or two between you and the people down below. They really can hear you walking around up there. But the dead, uh, I don't think so. But I don't know, you know, I don't say anything uh, unequivocally because I just don't know. There's so much I don't know. I don't know what I was just talking about. No, I do. I remember that. So we're standing there at the at the grave, and it's lovely, you know, in a sad way, and it feels less sad, you know, once you're going to put somebody in the ground and everything, I was thinking it's probably the right thing to do, I mean, a lot of people say we burn them up or whatever, 
or um, send them to the moon or Viking burial is one, but we don't, you know, if you live in a place, some places have no natural lakes. So you'd have to have a Viking funeral in a retention pond and it's frowned upon. It might be traditional, but it's frowned upon. Those are not fjords. They're stormwater holding areas. So they opted for burial, which is fine, in a pine box, which is also lovely, and uh, a bottomless crypt so that the pine box can break down again, go back to nature. Now, a lot of people in your tradition might be, you put um, the box, I hope I'm not upsetting you, but this is, uh, everyone who's ever lived dies, and I'm just talking about stuff that's really part of life. And it might be hard to accept sometimes, but, you know, maybe this is why Halloween's lovely. Sometimes if you stare right at that horrible thing, it loses some of its power. A lot of our tradition is to put somebody in a steel box, like a safety deposit box or something, seal them in there airtight, and then put them in a crypt made of concrete. Now, um, they take moisture with them, so they, they're in there becoming putrefied in this wonderful anaerobic uh, sealed thing and but others say hey wouldn't it be nice if you you know sort of went back to nature and they just your body decomposed and you could be fertilizer for something for a loblolly pine wouldn't that be great I wish I could be food for a loblolly pine I wish I could nourish a live oak into old age with others. We all get absorbed in there. Imagine there lying with your ancestors and your descendants, and you get sucked up into the roots of a grand tree. You become its food. It consumes you, and you become part of it, except that you don't know you're part of it. So, hmm, I guess... These are all things for the living to think about, all the poetry and something to console ourselves with. So I was thinking these things as I stood there and they said all the things they say over the coffin and a, they couldn't get the official military there. So a, a member of the family who was in the military helped with the flag and because he was, like I said, he was a veteran who had gone to Japan in World War II and still could remember the Japanese that he learned on the way there. And uh, Cousin Blue Taps, I think it was Taps. I don't know that it was their primary instrument that they were playing. I think their primary instrument might have been something else, like, I don't know, I knew mouth harp. But what they were playing it on was a trumpet, and so you know how that is. But we got the gist. You know, I heard a trauma. I bet that's taps. So uh, this all happened. And then they lowered. They used a funeral home that uh, the other side of the family doesn't use. We use one that has a motor that will lower you down. But they used people. So these people came out and started lowering the straps down. And they all looked like they were going to tumble in the grave. And then everybody threw dirt on the grave. You know, that's a tradition. So they take a shovel and they use the back of the shovel to put the dirt in because that symbolizes their reluctance to do it. But I'm not reluctant. I'm like, bury the mother. I'm blessing, but like, let's, I miss him. But this is the part uh, I'm all for. So I did my, I used my hands. I took a scoop of earth and I threw it on what used to be Uncle Edwin and Uncle Edwin in reality now resides in my heart and my memories in the show. And so you'll know all of, all you need to know about him. All that you need to know about him. His family knows more in the next half hour or so. Isn't that amazing? So we got all that done. And, and then we're going to go back to his family home. And pretty much there all day, there's a Shiva minion and I'm going to get to that in a minute. So we go back to the house now. We're going to go there and we're going to eat because that's what you do. And for some reason, that helps. And all the people help. That's what's so magnificent. And that is really the key to this all. It's the group. 
is the minion. It has to be 10 people. Is that See, a minion is like a heap paradox, except that there's a number. So, you know, how many grains of rice is a heap? And in, in Jewish tradition, you'd go 10, like that. And you go, okay, well, all right, that's pretty clear cut, because we don't have all day. So it's 10. So the minimum amount of people to make a group that'll give you that feeling, that group feeling, this is in my opinion, uh, is 10. That's not in my opinion. The, the fact that it has to do with the feeling of being outside of yourself. Because that's what consoles me when I'm sad, you know. I lost it a couple times and cried and there was people there to hold me. And the minute they had their arms around me, well, I'd sobbed even more, you know, because you get, you get the permission for the release. But I felt buoyed, you know, and I wasn't one of the main grievers. I, I, I love the man, but, you know, his, his kids are probably more uh, sad and his widow. But it works, you know, there's people around you and you feel at least distracted, but you also feel the energy of their life. And you say, well, I'm alive, you know, it might be for two seconds more, but I'm alive. So I, uh, I went and I got something to eat, you know, and I'm often the, oh, I hate to say this, but I'm very hungry all the time. So I'm often the first person in line. And I'm like, what is it going to take to eat? Is it the mozi? Do we need to grow grab a rabbi to, to say the mozi or something? And they're no. Uh, we're waiting for the widow to get here. And I'm like, oh, for gosh sakes. Really? No, I'm all for that. I, I try not to articulate those feelings, but I'm so hungry. And there's just like white fish salad there and on. I'm ready to dig in. So eventually got some food, got a plate of food, went there and sat, sat next to somebody I don't know, somebody disagreeable, some friend of the family who took an instant dislike to me. I found that interesting. So uh, I was like, man, I don't know what to make of this. I love it. I love it, though. I love anything real. I love real people. Not the show, but the lowercase real people. And then after a few hours, we had the proper, um, you know, that night had the the shiva minion and the one of the rabbis the one that had just been uh, recently left he was saying I, I, you know we're all together now and we're going to be telling stories and everything and we're going to go through these prayers and everyone kind of all these concepts I want to talk about in the in the prayer and the reading and it has to do also with the life of this person. For instance, redemption. Is there anybody who has a story where Edwin redeemed them? And a fellow stands up. The fellow used to own a pest control company. And he stands up and he says, yes, I do. One time uh, he came to me and said, I think you should be on the board at Temple. And I said, all right. And we all looked at each other and we said, is that, re is that redemption? Well, I don't understand. So nobody really understood what we were supposed to be doing. But I had noticed when uh, the rabbi said something about, oh, there's uh, stories to be told, that my cousin Jerome's eyebrows went up because he loved to tell stories. And I, his head got that. He kind of wiggles his head side to side like, like this. Like when my Indian friends are saying yes. and it, Like he gets excited. It's a kind of a Barney Fife thing and then he uh he walks up there but the rabbi changes gears and it's not story time anymore so he's just kind of standing there awkwardly to the side but he knows that the first opportunity he's going to go up there and tell a story so he walked up there at when it when the rabbi said is there another story and jerome says yes I was visiting one last time with Edwin. And then he proceeds to tell a joke that Edwin told him because they were telling jokes to each other. And it was the exact same joke that he had told me, that Edwin told me on his deathbed. It is literally his last words to me. He told me this joke. I said goodbye. I left and I never saw him alive again. So, 
Jerome started to tell this joke, and I thought, uh-oh, because I know there's a little moment in there. <laughs> this is what they would do to you. Uh, I've heard more than one person say that. You know, I was telling a joke that Edwin told to me, and about halfway through the joke, I realized that there was a racy part. So that's what, it, I love that. But that's what happened in this joke. And he got to the end, and he forgot the punchline. He forgot the punchline, and it was the same awkward silence. That's the second awkward silence that had happened. It was wonderful. I, you know, I don't even think those silences are awkward. I mean, they're awkward for everybody but me. I, I just don't know. I guess because I do public speaking or something like that, that I just, you know, eventually you're just not terrified by things like that anymore. You know, you can't be. So, oh, my worst fear is I'm getting up, I'm speaking to people, and I just blank. You know, oh, my love, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Audience just looking at me. Say, why isn't Hardy saying anything? Why is he looking at his hand? That happened to me. And I just, you know, who cares? That's the thing. And, you know, oh, I'm, whoops, I won't get my Oscar or whatever else, the awards they give. Yep, he, had, he almost had it at the end, though. He stumbled. And he forgot. Yeah, whatever. So uh, nothing's the end of the world but the end of the world. Nothing's death but death. So I can't embarrass myself into oblivion like that anymore. Thank goodness. You get inured to it. I think embarrassment is like viruses. You can get antibodies. And I'm not as easily embarrassed anymore because I'm what <laughs> I I don't know why, but I'm glad. So he told this joke and the reaction mixed. And I will tell you the joke in a little bit. I'm going to tell you a joke because I, when I flash back to our visit. So we asked some other things. The rabbi, does anybody have any advice? And a cousin put his hand, uh, hand up, the grandson of the deceased. And he said, yes. He always said, plan your work. And work your plan. And then the rabbi repeated it. He said, find your work. Yes. And the grandson said, no, that's not what. And then they moved on. So that was a mishearing. So I'm checking all my wonderful lists. I, I love, these are all the things that, awkward pauses, people mishearing things, lack of communication. These are all, I all look for them when people interact because I love it. It's just so real. It happens all the time. Everything about life and death was just displayed right there. And I love having those moments. I can't take them all the time. We can't. I'm glad we have rituals for them to process them because if they were just floating around all the time, I wouldn't know what to do. But they were all in the context of ritual and ceremony, and I was fine with that. And so it made it a little easier because, you know, when something like that happens, like you're at the cemetery, you start looking around and you start noticing people's names that you know. And most of them are old people, but, you know, I lost a young friend and I remembered that she was buried on the other side of the cemetery and I remember that. Oh, that was just the worst funeral I'd ever been to because she just died too young and it was too sad and her life was hard and the people saying stuff about her was uh, kind of inaccurate, and it was Easter, so there was all sorts of religious weirdness going on at her funeral. So all that's rushing back to you, you know? And just there's no way to stand there among, among the dead like that and not be compelled to think about your own mortality. And I said, wow, what is my end will be like? I'll miss, start missing people already. You know, you're headed out, you're about to go have a sandwich, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm going to miss everybody. Well, you know, not yet. So don't, don't start missing yet. Don't let that creep in, Hardy. Don't let that creep in. You're alive right now. Do you have to be reminded? We're about to have a sandwich, son. And here you are thinking about your own demise, laying there saying goodbye, being sad, you know? My goodness, life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat. Gently, 
down the stream. Or steam. I don't know. It could be a steam, a stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. A dream that you don't wake from so you wouldn't know it was a dream. Maybe you do wake from it. How do I know? Why would I know? I like people who have certainty about the afterlife. That fascinates me. I'm not sure they're wrong and I'm not sure they're right. At that moment, they're right. I mean, you think about it, you know. I mean, your worldview is your worldview. The thing you think is that the world you think you live in is the world you live in. And you go about and all your decisions are made by the world that you think you live in. Not, not so much reality. You know, you can, what if you walk around thinking you're going to be in heaven and you're absolutely certain that's, that's real. And you're going to make decisions like that and it doesn't matter that it's not there, it is there. And I find that fascinating. So therefore, all these people around me, since I don't know what they're thinking and I don't know how they really see the world, I don't know which one they're living in. And we're all living in different overlapping dreams. All our little dream bubbles are bumping up against one another. Sometimes they, they overlap. Sometimes they're like Venn diagrams, except they're not circles. They're globes. They're bubbles. They're three-dimensional. They bump into each other. They're four-dimensional. They have an element of time. So there I stood at the services and feeling all these things, and then thinking back to those last moments when he was still alive. And I started thinking about all the loss in my life. People have died, my grandfather, and how you don't, you know, you, 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 when you have memories, you tend to think of the whole life. You know, you can't block out the part where they're old. And when I dream of my grandmother, she's, sometimes she's still old or she's frail. She's come back from the dead, but she's still sickly. And that's not the person I want to remember. I want to remember the vital her, you know, the one, uh, the scrappy her, and not the sad, diminished her. But, you know, that's all in there. I can't separate it. It's not, it, it's uh, like a pomegranate. You know, the first time someone has a pomegranate, they go, what, do you eat the seeds? You go, yeah, you know, you do. But you can sit there and try to... Uh, Suck the gel off the the pomegranate meat or something off the seed, but that's pointless when there's some equal amount of seed and fruit. So yeah, you eat the seeds, you know. You got it all is gonna happen together. So I'm sticking this pomegranate to my emotional experience in my mouth and and letting all these things come over me, you know, and uh, be overcome. That's why they call it that. And you cry in one minute and you're laughing the next minute. And then you cry laughing. It's all, it's all in there. So the last time I saw the man, I went up to his bed and I, I knew that he was going to interact with me just the same as he did everybody else. And I knew that I was going to get that wonderful, funny salesman treatment that he wasn't going to be serious with me unless I asked him something specific. So if I asked him about events, he was always, he wouldn't joke about that. When I asked him about Japan, he would not, you know, he'd tell me, frankly, in story form. He had all this tucked away. That's how you remember it, you know? You tell it a bunch. So he's not really remembering the 40s. He's remembering the last time he told the story. So you, you, you do a thing, you storyize it, you tell it. Keep telling it. You don't ever have to remember the original again. It's all there. It's all recent. You're updating it. You know, you don't have to go back for the shoe, you know, and say, oh, it's going to be ready next Thursday. So, you know, I walk in, and there he is in the, in the hospital bed, and I flash back to all my other relatives who have been in similar situations, the ones who have been blessed enough to live that long to be... <laughs> That in that state of near childlike uh, diminishment, but his brain seemed intact as it ever was, I suppose. Unless you don't need to be intact to tell wonderful stories or jokes, but I think it does. 
And so I said to him, you know, uh, oh, I've got some uh, weddings to do. Do you have any wedding advice? And uh, he told me advice is terrible. Never give it. And he says, you know something, though? The kind of line of scene on the Renapan. And I said, I'm sorry. Now, be reminded that he is 96 in a very sickly um, state, low energy, and he was talking like this, right, like this. Yes, Uncle Edwin, what? I understand the kind of balance in me. Uh-huh. Do you understand that? And being polite, I said, yes, I think so. And he said, no, you don't. Because he was doing doublespeak. So he was uh, having a little laugh at my, not at my expense. Maybe, I don't know my expense. I don't know who paid for it. But I was like, oh, gosh, do I feel foolish. And I didn't really. And I laughed along with him. But that was a gag. He'd done that his whole life. So much so that they mentioned it in more than one eulogy, which I thought is amazing, right? This is, guy is known for this. So it goes on like this, and he does, he jokes with me like this a few times, and then he says he wants to tell me something. And he said, there's this fella, Mike and Jim, and Mike uh, falls asleep, and he has a, a dream, and he uh, dreams he's going to the ballpark, and he goes to the ballpark. Now, at this point, some other family members come up, and they start listening, too, attentively, because he's speaking low, and he sounds like he's saying something. But I don't know that they know at this point that they walked into a very long joke. So they just think he's telling a story about his life or something like that. So they're, yes. And I'm sort of waiting. Yeah, I've got that gleeful grin where I'm just I'm waiting for the punchline, right? Guy goes to the ballpark in his dream, you know, and he's got a free ticket. And he gets in, he goes to see his favorite team. But, and then uh, one of, something happens to their slugger, and they call his ticket number. And he gets to go down there and hit. So he's standing there at home plate with the bat in his hand, getting ready to hit, bases loaded, his favorite team, big game, right? And, uh, you know, he... He hits it and it gets a home run. Base is loaded. Now, in the meantime, his friend Jim, or Mike, I don't remember, is also asleep having a dream. And he dreams he's uh, uh, selling something door to door. And he goes up to a door and this lady answers it in a negligee. Now, see, this is where it all starts to fall apart when you're telling it in a religious service. Um, so, uh, you know... And then he's, uh, she looks like Marilyn Monroe. So he's dropping all these names from, you know, when he was young. that it, Sexy women. So I guess at a certain age, you'd be like, I don't know who he's talking about. And, uh, yeah. So, he, the, oh, my word. And here I am just relaying it again. And uh, the salesman's dreaming of going in the house. And the woman says, yeah, I got these other... You know, friends here, these other uh, women that look like 50s uh, movie stars, sex idols or whatever you call them. That's not what you call them. What do you call them? Sex symbols or something. And uh, so um, I guess the, he's telling his friend about this uh, dream and uh, he says, you know, and they're going to go all upstairs and have fun and and uh, his friend says, why didn't you call me? And he said, I did. I called your house, and they said you were at the ballpark. Because they're so, they're both having a dream. But do you see where's that that's going? And so, I don't know, it's not a very funny joke. It wasn't, to, and I went, oh, yeah, all right. But I think it was the premise that interests me. The two people were having separate dreams, and their dreams overlapped. So their dreams were no real different than reality. So when they dreamed, they dreamed of each other. They included 
each other in their universe, both Mike and Jim. So the ballpark was in the same universe as going to have fun upstairs with Marilyn Monroe and her two friends. I'm trying to think who they could be. I'm a Shelley Winters might have been one. I mean, young Shelley Winters. And I don't know who the other one was. So he didn't say Shelley Winters. I added that. But if you tell the joke, you ought to make it. She's. So uh, these overlapping dream worlds started to occupy a little bit of my consciousness. And I thought about that. We're all dreaming of each other, aren't we? And, you know, I'll close my eyes one last time in this dream. And I might not fully remember it. But I'll tell you, the more that goes on, the more that my life goes on, you'd think it'd be more specific. It would come to you, it would seem more concrete. You know, as you lived your life when you were a child, you think, I'm going to, the world's going to seem more manageable to me. I'm going to understand more of it as I get older. And it's just the opposite for me. The older I get, the more I realize I have no idea really what's going on. When you're young, you know, I have my worldview is very simplistic. It's very easy to manage. The, everything seems logical to me, where things came from, who people are. I mean, I'm a little confused, and I know I don't know everything, and I know adults know more. But as I get out in the world, I think, well, I'm going to get to that point too. But I got to a certain age, and I realized, uh-oh, I don't really know what's going on. People are much more confusing to me than I realized. I am much more confusing to myself than I ever dreamed. And so it does seem like a dream sometimes. And it does seem like I'm bumping into other people's dreams and realities. Can you imagine if you have a, if you have a reality with a heaven and you bump into my heavenless reality or something? Oh, it could cause trouble. You're walking around in my world and it doesn't have a thing that you need. Why is there no kitchen in the house of your soul? Oh, we just free eat. We don't have a specific place for it. So that's the kind of thing. It's all different. And so when I looked around at the other mourners, I thought everybody's got a different idea of what this is. They've got a different idea of what's going to happen to them. I wonder what they're thinking right now. And you never really know. You can kind of hear what their collective beliefs are when their religious leaders get up there and they sort of say things. But, you know, a lot of the things we say at funerals have nothing to do with the person who's gone. You know, they have to do with us. It's got to make sense to us to console us. You know, it's debatable what's going on with them, but gosh, we're still here thinking and feeling things, making sense of it. Oh, and I have nothing to offer but a weird joke that I got mostly wrong and an embrace. I can cry with you. I can laugh when you want to laugh. I can get in line at the food table with you. I can sit there. I can comfort you. I have no answers. I can answer simple things. But I mean, like, the disagreeable person I sat with, what is it that you do? Uh, like, uh-oh. When that's the first thing out of their mouth, you know it's going to be rough. And I don't know. I, I fluctuate between, you know, being, I try to be just accurate. Because I... Part of me wants to be self-aggrandizing. Someone's like, I'm just going to tell them I'm this, that, or the other thing so I don't feel inferior. Part of me wants to understate it, you know. So I, me, I, nothing. I'm very, you know, I, I didn't know which way to go. Thought I'd just tell him, you know, kind of literally what I'd do. He was massively unimpressed. Uh, really not excited about my life choices. I don't know this person. I had never met them before. But it's interesting how disappointed they were in just to who I was and that they had to sit next to me 
to have the sandwich at this card table. What a waste of their time. But um, that's all right. I, I, try, I just kept apologizing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. Um, I just want to eat my sandwich, really, and think about life and maybe wander off a little bit wistfully, walk around the house. In his later years, when before he was completely incapacitated, Uncle Edwin started making things out of other things. He would take little parts, you know, bolts and nuts and little metal rods and magnets and washers, and, and he would take these washers and things and he'd build nonsensical sculptures out of them. Sometimes they moved, and he would spend a lot of time making these things. He would say he was uninventing, and he just embraced this sort of pointless creating, and he spent a lot of time at it, and he'd organize all his materials, and he'd just get just the right washer, and he'd hang it on just the right hook there, and things would spin, and they weren't, you know, it wasn't like one of those sculptures you go, whoa, that's amazingly clever. It was just an expression of his whimsy wherever he wanted to go at that time. It was for him. It was a thing he was making. He was making just to make with no point finally. You could tell he was absolutely liberated. He didn't have to spend his time doing anything that was productive or interesting or important. He could just entertain himself like a child. He could play, and he got to play again. And I thought, that's extraordinary. This person is modeling a lot of great behavior for me. I want to be like him in so many ways, except for the, you know I won't be just telling jokes on my, on my um, deathbed. It's more like I'm going to grab your hand, squeeze it real hard, sob, and go, tell me it's going to be okay. I'm so scared. So that won't be great for my family and friends. Oh, my God. I wish I got a do-over. Um, you know, they go, oh, God, you're making it worse. I'm sorry. But uh, that's weird. Oh, to each his own. And, uh, <laughs> well, hopefully people will laugh at the absurdity of my panic. You know, they go, well, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Change your heart and die. So, um or else, you know, you're going to be you're going to be miserable. I got to tell you, you know, I've had a this um, since I came back from the funeral, I've been sort of, you know, paranoid about my health, thinking, oh my god, I've done something to kill myself. I'm going to die by, you know, uh, not taking care of myself or something. <coughs> oh, I've got now I'm coughing. Am I sick? Am I terminally ill? I start to panic like that. And I walk around alone a lot. You know, I've got friends and family, but I do spend a lot of time alone by choice. You know, I'm a solitary person, and I'm a um, person that likes to do a lot of intellectual work, or I largely do that alone. So, you know, I can get myself into a very, in a very worked-up state. And, and, uh, and then it comes time to speak to you. And everything's okay in that moment, in that hour. And I'm talking and I don't care where I came from or where I'm going suddenly. We're just you and me. We're, we're talking. We're thinking about stuff. We're together. We're sensing each other's presence. We're just, we're alive. And that moment becomes in, just infinite for me. And the past falls away quickly it just becomes fodder for stories and the future falls away it just becomes something that we're both looking at over the side of a boat you and I are we're just standing over the side of the boat and there in a distance is maybe the island that we're we're sailing towards and we know we might not get there who knows it doesn't matter we're not on the island right now we're on the boat and we're together and as we turn away from the side of the ship and we walk back to our cabin or we walk back to the me messy thing, what's it called, the grub mess thing? I'm not on ships a lot, you know, where you eat. And uh, 
you're yelling it. I love it. I love it how everyone yells, typing it furiously in the comments. Have you ever done that just to try as an exercise? You have the answer. Don't say it. Like, think, does anybody want the answer? You know, because we're very quick to, online, that's very quick to do that. Oh, they certainly, they want the answer. Here it is. Maybe they don't. You know, we're always want to, I think that's, you know, the, the internet started like that. I think we think like everybody, we need, everybody has to, input is important. You know, they're at, I'm being asked my opinion, just not literally. Just my input is needed and wanted. And look at the reality that we've assembled collectively over the internet. The world, what have you lived in an a world created entirely by the collective consciousness of Twitter. Oh, my word. I wonder if that's our world that we live in or whether it's different. Well, I'll never know. Good. I don't have to figure it out. I am unburdened by uh, the idea that I have to solve things or figure things out. Edwin had no advice like that on his deathbed. He didn't say to me, this is life, that is that. He knew better than to do that. Go out, experience it, he said. That's what you do. Just go out and be. And then when it's done, it's done. Then you tell a joke. And then you don't wake up. That was his philosophy, I guess. And he did it right. And there wasn't there, you know, and I granted he lived to an advanced age, so it wasn't sad like my friend Stephanie's funeral was. But my goodness, you know, I felt like I kept saying at the funeral, man, he nailed that landing. I can't think of a better way to end, end life than to say your piece to everybody for a year. And your piece has, happens to be just a bad joke. But there it is, and you've left your legacy. And it's wonderful, and people have warm feelings. Now, I wonder if he couldn't have stirred the muck a little more. You know, I, I think when I, uh, when I die, there would people have, you know, maybe a beef with me. Apparently, he had one, he had one beef when he died uh, that there was this local restaurant that had not honored a coupon one time, and he was just, he was livid and done with them. So that might be it, though. And that was also mentioned at his funeral. Imagine that. That was so significant. The only person or people or entity that Edwin didn't like was a local restaurant whose buffet we all enjoy, but he was very uh, upset that they did not honor this coupon. And so he just carried that around in his craw for a long time. And that's good. Better that than some kind of personal vendetta against somebody. Just being mad at a restaurant. I hope I'm like that. He was like, oh man, Cap'n D's didn't give me two for one. So it wasn't Cap'n D's. It was a locally owned restaurant. Uh, my goodness. I'm, I'm so blessed. I'm blessed to have you. I'm blessed we're friends. I'm blessed I get to, to, to talk about this on the... Did I just talk about a funeral for an hour? I don't know. Is that entertainment? Now these my these are my. You get my deathbed words every week for a while. You can pick some that you like, and uh, and you know at the end of the show I'm not here anymore. You don't know. Maybe I'm not here right now. I always think that that there's going to be maybe a show I do where I'm dead by the time it airs. I like to. That's just a fantasy I have. <laughs> like I wonder I'll never know what they really thought. That's, I don't, sometimes I, you know what was years before I read the comments on the show? I was just so absolutely terrified. And somebody had said, oh, you know, watch out for the comments, which was the worst piece of advice I ever got, you know, because they're just fine. So I don't know, it took me so long. Now I, now I do. But it was uh, for a while there, I thought, oh, they're going to get you. Like, I don't know why that would be. And I don't know why I would, you know, what's that have to really do with me? I wonder. I don't know who I've given the, who have I given the power to discourage me? I wonder who, I've got to check that out because I hope I haven't given it to strangers. 
I hope the only power to discourage me is, uh, I think, Butchie. I think I've only given it to Butchie. So he can get he can get to me. But uh, I don't know. No, I get discouraged. You, <laughs> you're a liar. <laughs> you know, I am a liar. I get discouraged a lot. Listen, hey, I'm trying to be an example for the young people. They don't want to think they get to get to my age or something when still full of self-doubt or, or discouragement or anything. But I blame uh, fluctuating hormones and uh, blood sugar. I think the my inner solid wisdom is pretty steadfast. I just can't always hear it because it has a very low old man voice. So my inner wisdom is going, you know, this mannequin on the front of the fan. And I go, yes, I understand. No, you don't. Maybe I don't. Oh, but it can't go wrong telling you I need you. I can't go wrong honoring the idea that the more of us there are, the more everything is better. That the sad moments are less sad and the happy moments are happier when we do them together you know that's why dividing people it just wrecks life it wrecks it because we need each other so desperately and you know the more we are together and being and honoring one another and loving the more we're on the same page there the more we start sharing the same world a world where compassion or love or understanding or tenderness or patience or cleverness where they matter. But if you start isolating and saying, oh, I don't need those people, they're going to go off and live in another dream bubble. So I try to, to keep that circle large. I've got all my little circles. And they come out, they radiate out, and I want to, I want to try to keep them all, you know, and you're in one. And uh, it's important to me. It's important to me. You influence and help me, and I do it for you too. And you make the sad less sad for me. And you make the happier more happy for me. And I love it. And if we can do this for one another, why wouldn't we? That's a, Why wouldn't we? So I will never ever, ever use this microphone to purposely hurt or separate people from one another. I would never do it to bully and uh, I can't, um, uh, when people do, I, I think it's tragic. It's, it's tragic. And it destroys the world. It wrecks a world that me and my friends are trying to repair desperately. And what does that mean? It means what you want it to mean. It's a, a thing to be thought about, not to be explained explicitly. It's a thing to be compli compl uh, contemplated. There's all sorts of study. Like that's how I approach any kind of mystical, spiritual study. It's not for definitive answers. It's for opportunities to discuss things with other people. To interact. They're all excuses. You know, to feel the presence of others. We are not solitary creatures. We are born alone and die alone. Just because we're not really sure what that word means. What's alone mean? What's together mean? Let's spend all our lives thinking about it. Oh, you are listening to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White on WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, 91.9 in Rockland County and New York City, New York, and online at WFMU.org. I am so uh, blessed that you're in my life, and I am uh, very, and I'm, in yours, and I don't know how you feel about that. So I hope it's okay. And I will see you again next week.
Ebony, twins niggas Ebony, and niggas mahogany, 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 twins niggas Ebony.